Okay, as everyone gets settled, welcome back. I hope you had an, uh, an enjoyable break. Um, we're going to begin our next block of speakers uh, with one of my favorite Cato adjunct scholars. I mean, granted, I love all of our adjunct scholars, but some I like more than others. Uh, and uh, this one in particular, Professor Kevin Dowd, is joining us all the way from the UK, so I appreciate Kevin crossing the Atlantic to come here. Uh, in addition to being a Cato adjunct scholar, Kevin is a professor of economics and finance at Durham University in the UK. Kevin is also a prolific author, having written numerous books, countless articles on topics ranging from pension reform to free banking. I'll say I consider Kevin's 1996 book, Competition and Finance, to be one of the modern classics in financial economics, uh, and it's with great pleasure that we've made a free e-version of that book available on the Cato website. Kevin is also the co-author of Alchemists of Loss, which I consider, um, and this is, a, I think, a pretty big boast uh, from my perspective, the single best book I've read on the financial crisis. Uh, and we are so delighted to have complimentary copies available, uh, which Kevin will be delighted to sign later. We are also delighted to have Kevin's co-author on that book, Martin Hutchinson, here today in the audience. Um, Kevin's latest book, published by the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, is titled New Private Monies. So it is great pleasure that I uh, welcome Professor Kevin Dowd to the podium. Thank you, Mark, and good morning, everybody. Um, my topic reminds me of a comment by Ronald Coase, and it's in typically bad taste. He says, in my youth, it was said that what was too silly to be said may be sung. In modern economics, it's put into mathematics. So my topic is math gone mad. And by math, I mean risk modeling. And my focus is on regulatory capital modeling and think particularly of the stress tests. Now, my basic message is that the models are useless. Well, actually, oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Actually, it's really that the models are worse than useless. And the reason is because they're gameable and they provide false risk comfort. So what I would like to do is to look at some examples of how this actually works in practice. So as a warm-up, let's look at the foundations of um, of risk modeling. And the first is the assumption of Gaussian returns. Now, some of you might remember the 25 Sigma events experienced by Goldman Sachs in August 07. The hedge funds were getting hammered, and their CEO famously said, we're experiencing 25 Sigma events several days in a row. <laughs> now, these were likened to events one would expect to see one day in 10 or 100,000 years. So my response, that's nonsense. If returns were Gaussian, the waiting time to observe such returns would be that. That's for a single day. So you can see it's got a whole bunch of over 100 zeros. And in comparison, the number of particles in the universe is, is trivial. So these numbers are so big that the term cosmological doesn't suffice. It's been suggested that we should describe them as economical instead. So the Gaussian underestimates the risks of really big losses. A second pillar is the value at risk risk measure. This tells us the worst we can expect if a bad loss does not occur. I mean, does not occur. It tells us nothing about what might happen if a bad event does occur. So the, the VAR is blind to the risks that matter, the ones that can put us out of business. 
A third problem is that risk models don't work. I could give many examples, but just consider this. The one plot shows banks' average risk-weighted assets, and this includes the impact of risk models. The other shows a primitive metric, leverage, the ratio of assets to capital, and this ignores risk models. So which works better? The RWA plot suggests that risks were continually falling. The leverage plot suggests that they were rising up to 08. So one indicates falling risks, and the other indicates rising risks. And we all know how that worked out. The unrisk-adjusted measure works better. So the negative value added from the risk modeling. Now, there are various reasons for that, but only one that matters. The risk-weighting system was being gamed. No model can take account of the ways in which it will be gamed, and market players have incentives to game the models used to control them. So why does bad modeling persist? Well, the reason is that banks want bad models because they want models that understate their risks. The regulatory system is captured by the banks, so the bad practices persist. So most risk modeling is just a game. You pretend to model risks, but you're really modeling the risk numbers. You're gaming the risk numbers. And this game even has a name, risk-weighted optimization. Get them as low as possible. The lower the weights, the lower the capital requirements, and the more capital can be siphoned off. So it's all about using the capital regulations to decapitalize the banks. And then you ask for a bailout when it all goes wrong. So you have all these problems and more with regulatory stress testing. One problem is that this implies a risk standard, a regulatory standard, an approved way to manage risks. And any such standard is inherently self-contradictory. Remember that VAR numbers, when VAR numbers rise, a bank's encouraged to sell to get its VAR back down. But what works at the level of the individual bank cannot work at the level of the system. One bank can sell, but the lot cannot. The assets still need to be held. So bottom line is that a regulatory risk standard aggravates systemic instability. There's another contradiction too. Central bank stress tests lack credibility because central banks have an incentive to push the message that the system is safe. Even if they think otherwise, central bank cannot voice these concerns. So people would then accuse the bank, the central bank, of having failed in its duty. So the net result is that the central bank stress test is nothing more than a PR exercise. Anyway, let's just move on and look at some of the requirements for good stress testing if you have to do it. And we can compare the central bank stress test against these criteria. The bottom line is that the major stress tests fail all of these criteria. Consider number one, do not use RWAs. Well, they all use RWAs. Consider number two, there should be multiple scenarios. So what do they do? They focus on one. So even if you're covered under the one scenario, how do you know that you're covered against all the other scenarios you didn't consider? And the answer is you don't. No single scenario can possibly give you confidence that the system is safe. Anyway, let's, let's move on and consider these criteria against the real-world examples. And with that in mind, I'd like to consider the Fannie and Freddie stress tests. These go back to the early 90s when there was concern over the GSE's solvency. There were proposals to increase their capital requirements, but Fannie managed to an audacious coup. It commissioned Paul Folker to examine the matter, and he concluded that Fannie was safe. 
Fanny's chief executive could then claim their business was safer than banking. There are no unpleasant surprises because of the nature of our business. We don't have any see-through buildings, any third world countries, or any strip shopping malls. We just have those mortgages. It then took nearly a decade for the rocket scientists to come up with risk-based capital requirements that were not much higher than zero, and this at the time when they were loading up on subprime. But this was not a problem because the model said this toxic stuff was actually safe. And as the details were being finalized, Fanny scored another coup by commissioning a distinguished team of economists led by Joe Stiglitz to carry out their own stress tests. And the Stiglitz team concluded that even under a decade-long nuclear winter scenario, the probability of failure was zero. The GSEs then went on a massive binge and effectively failed six years later. So what went wrong? Well, part of the problem was that the stress-based capital requirements were way too low. But part of the problem was that the new system allowed the GSEs to game the system by loading up on risks that the new models didn't cover. The GSE's management were also working to contracts that encouraged excess risk-taking. They were also gaming their government, the, the GSE's government-sponsored status. They would tell Congress not to worry because the government was not on the hook. Then they would tell Wall Street not to worry because the government was on the hook. <laughs> so there was the political meddling as well. Anyway, let's turn to the Fed stress tests. So you had the relatively light... SCAP in 2009, followed by the CCAR and so forth from 2011 onwards. The CCAR is a highly aggressive program in which banks are required to prove the adequacy of their models to the Fed's models. Each CCAR has been more extensive and demanding than the previous one. In 2013, you had the Dodd-Frank stress test added, and the next year you had the Basel III stress test added. Critics pointed out that the stress were reliant on the Fed scenarios, which were not really stressful. They're also blind to risks identified by outside observers, such as, for example, the Eurozone uh, collapse, which was added after the Eurozone crisis hit its peak. The CCAR still ignores the biggest risk, that created by off-balance sheet activities. The Fed stress tests also involve extraordinary compliance costs that resemble a tax audit. So when I was looking at Math Gone Mad, I interviewed the senior managers of a major bank. They told me that much of its normal business activity had to stop because of the need to feed the Fed's models. Both its IT staff and its management were overwhelmed. It was forced to make huge investments in models and modelers it didn't want and then take more risks to recoup the costs. It had to call a halt to further acquisitions and it couldn't assess the regulatory risks in potential purchasers. The models themselves warped its whole business model right down to the level of individual lending activities. But the models couldn't be challenged. So banks have to manage to what they perceive to be the Fed's model. Otherwise, they fail the test. They then end up with much the same crappy models. They make much the same mistakes, and the result is much greater systemic risk. And none of the models pick this up. So over time you also find that the tests become routine and the results become predictable. The whole exercise then becomes a meaningless compliance exercise. There's now a flourishing consultancy business that specializes in how to pass the tests. The consultants are former Fed officials, the same ones who used to carry out the tests themselves. 
So the very process of, stress of repeated stress testing has made the test futile. Put all this together, and you have a lot of jobs for, for risk modelers and a growing systemic risk that the models cannot see. So let, anyway, let's not be too hard on the Fed, because when it comes to stress testing, or screwing up stress testing, the Fed's an amateur. <laughs> consider, consider Iceland. In 2004, the big three Icelandic banks had assets equal to 100% of GDP. They then embarked on a massive expansion. By end or seven, their assets were 900% of GDP. Fortunately, an IMF stress test in August 08 suggested there was nothing to worry about. The system was resilient. So did a bunch of other stress tests. The banking system then collapsed unexpectedly in October. The stress test had missed the imminent collapse of an entire banking system. Then there are the new kids on the block, the Brits. And with that in mind, can I make a shameless plug for my follow-up to Math Gone Mad? If you notice the title, I was going to change it to No Stress, Please, We're British. <laughs> it's a bad joke, but I can't resist it. No, no Sex, Please uh, was a flop on Broadway. Anyway, the, the, the first stress was last year. The message was that the system was sound. There was a single scenario and a very low hurdle rate. So if we had to redo the stress with the new hurdle rates coming through under Basel III, what we would find is that the banking system would fail. Same exercise, higher hurdle, opposite result. Just to summarize that. Nor did the bank carry out a leverage test, despite the fact that it expects the banks to meet a minimum leverage requirement. So what would have happened had the banks carried this, out this test? The answer is again that the banks would have failed. So there is a question about why the bank didn't stress test against its own minimum. Well, it didn't, but if it had done so, can you imagine the headlines? Basically, stress test show banks up shit creek no paddle. <laughs> so you might say that the bank was damned because it didn't and would have been damned if it did. As I would put it, a very British cop-out. But even this is the weakest of leverage tests and many experts are suggesting 15% minimum, not 3%. By this standard, the UK banking system wouldn't be underwater. It would be in Davy Jones' locker. Now, this is pretty bad, but even the Brits are, not, are no match for the real masters of the screwed-up stress test, the Europeans. So you've got to think of this as, as a kind of Laurel and Hardy show. So the first, the first of their tests was innocuous. All the banks passed. The second test in 2010 had only seven failures. The combined shortfall was 3.5 billion euros, which is 0.15% of GDP. So this figure was a fraction of the estimates of independent analysts, and the stress ignored the elephant in the room, which was sovereign debt. This was because the EU were committed to ensuring that such defaults never happened, a case of make-believe undermining the exercise. And any doubts about that were dispelled four months later when the Irish banking system collapsed. The Irish banks had passed the stress test. So another banking system had bites the dust. The 2011 stress tests were carried out by the new European Banking Authority. It promised that its tests really would be credible, etc. We're not going to repeat the earlier mistakes. Much greater awareness of the sovereign debt issue and the need to prove itself. So what did it do? It came out with a shortfall of 2.5 billion, which is even less than what it had the year before. 
Any doubts about the credibility of that exercise were then dispelled three months later when Dexia failed. Dexia had aced the stress test at the top of the class. In the meantime, the EBA revised its numbers, and its revised estimate turned out to be 45 times larger than the original. And even this was much lower than what independent experts were getting. Then Bankia failed in Spain, and Bankia had also passed the stress test. And then, the icing on the cake, the entire Cypriot banking system collapsed. And they had also passed the stress test. So now the stress testers had a hat trick. The na three national banking systems had failed after being signed off as sound. So it's a kind of kiss of death. Then we come to last year. The ECB took over, the Get Tough ECB. Its stress test really would be credible, and it would not repeat earlier fiascos. It also had a pressing need to prove itself. So what did it do? It produced a shortfall of 0.1% of bank assets, which is small change. So the question arises, why did they even bother? A chorus of experts then dismissed the results on publication. Now, one problem was the adverse scenario, which was rather mild. This suggested that inflation might drop to a low of 1%. By the time the results were released, much of the Eurozone was in deflation. So this came up at the press conference when challenged the ECB vice, vice president's response was a classic. He said, the scenario of deflation is not there because we don't consider it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you just can't make it up. Needless to say, independent experts were coming out with much, much bigger figures. And their results suggest that the biggest risk are with the French and the big French and German banks, the ones that are supposed to be sound. The main reason for the discrepancy is that the independent experts were using leverage ratios that revealed the risks rather than RWA ratios which hid them. So the implication is that these big banks appear strong because of their superior expertise in gaming the weights. Now consider the big, the big banks, Credit Agricole, BNP, Socgen and Deutsche. Each of these, number one, easily passed the stress test. Number two, would easily have failed an undemanding leverage ratio test. Number three, would produce enormous shortfalls under a severe leverage test. And number four, had very low ratios of risk weighted to total assets. So the take-home message is that most of their risks are invisible to the ECB test. So these banks are more risky, but also better at hiding their risks. Yeah, that's the thing I meant to go. So I could go on a little bit more. I'm almost out of time. But just to elaborate a little bit on, on, the, on Deutsche, which was described as the most systematically important and undercapitalized bank in the world. The NY Fed gave a severe dressing down to Deutsche, basically saying there was a systemic breakdown in their controls. But just look at the size. The 55 trillion balance sheet, which is 22 times... German GDP. So there's a nice little quote from uh, Zero Hedge. He says, the slightest systemic, risk in, slightest systemic shock in Europe, and Deutsche gets it. And as Deutsche goes, so does Germany, so does Europe, so goes the world. So that's the European stress test. So what to do? So what to do? Well, clearly, if I haven't got this message across, uh, I must be really awful. Uh, the stress tests don't work. They're just a faulty radar system they're dangerous because of the false risk comfort they provide and the hidden risks they create. 
basically, chicken entrails would be better. So, the f well, it worked for the Romans, right? So, so the, f the Fed should stop the stress test. I would also recommend an act to prohibit uh, regulatory risk modeling altogether. Yeah. This would put a stop to carnage by computing. It would also require the United States to withdraw from the Basel system. Basel is bonkers anyway. Finally, I would say we should go much further. The stress tests are just the tip of the iceberg. I think we should break up the iceberg. The historical evidence suggests if you want a safe and strong banking system, there's only one way to get it. You need free banking. Basically, laissez-faire in money and banking, roll back all the government intervention, Dodd-Frank, blah, 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 the lot. So bottom line, ending the stress tests conducted by the Fed would be a good start, but it would be much better to end the Fed itself as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yep, uh, yeah. the rest of the time for questions, please, but I, if I can see anybody. No, that's good. Hi, uh, Yalman from Bloomberg. Hi. Hi, Hi Yalman, yes. How are you? I'm good. Um, so I, I, I get the points, and they're great points, and we've talked about some of these before, but you have some new, new points that I, that I really enjoyed about the stress test. But the conclusion that we should really end them, do we need to end them, or can we uh, revise them considerably, getting rid of the risk-weighting component and looking at leverage and, and a decent scenario, multiple scenarios that actually look at serious uh, economic and financial downturns, uh, in Europe or U.S., whatever we're looking at, and then maybe it could serve a purpose, and it wouldn't cost millions of dollars for banks to comply because when you have a simple formula, simple model, not you know, and just really just the leverage ratio, then it's harder to game, and it could actually tell us whether the banks are safe or sound, or or you don't think that's salvageable. Well, two things. First off, I would say don't do risk modeling, but yes. Until we get to free banking, where the banks are now currently very undercapitalized. Oh, sorry, sorry, thank you. Until we get to free banking, we have a massive problem of undercapitalization of banks. I would go for a very conservative leverage based ratio. In fact, 15% would do me just fine. If we got to free banking, we wouldn't need that because you would have extended liability and all this governance stuff, and we, we would get rid of it. But for now, that is the urgent question. Martin. Uh, Martin Hutchinson, your co-author and uh, author of the Bears Lair column, among other things. Isn't the problem the vast expansion in derivatives, for example, in the last 30, 40 years? So you've got Deutsche Bank with 100 times the German GDP or whatever it was in risk assets. And if you don't, if you don't apply a, ze a zero uh, multiple to derivatives, um, it's obviously not going to be able to do that. It can't hold that kind of capital, and derivatives become very expensive. And doesn't that also solve the LIBOR problem? Because I really have a great deal of sympathy for that poor chap, the London LIBOR trader, 
because actually he was doing what traders always do, which is sort of nudging the system a bit. And if you nudge the system when it, the way it was set up for bank deposits, which is, you know, maybe 10, 20 billion for an individual bank, then you may make $12.50 by nudging the system on the exact interest rate. But if, on the other hand, you've got 300 trillion being reset by this thing, then you're making, you know, a thousand times $12.50, or indeed a hundred thousand times $12.50. So isn't it the vast explosion in derivatives that's actually made the whole system completely unmanageable because the risks are just bigger than the world GDP? Well, Martin, I, I believe the root cause is the deterioration in corporate governance in banking, which is a result of various forms of government intervention. And that's one of the points we try to make in our book. That's the underlying cause of this. Obviously, derivatives have a useful purpose, but when you have a collapse in effective corporate governance, you have all the moral hazards within the banks and without get out of control. And that's one reason why derivatives have reached the enormous and dangerous extent they are. And no, I don't have any sympathy for that guy in uh, LIBOR because they knew what they were doing was wrong and we, we don't sort of put enough of these guys in jail. Yeah, 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 put them all in jail. All the people who are responsible should go to jail. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, in defense of uh, mad mathematical modeling, I agree the Gaussian distribution way under state's risks and has been overused mm -hmm. extensively in Wall Street. Uh, but the um, uh, years ago, Benoit Mandelbrot and Jean Fama proposed the stable distributions, which are a much heavier tailed class and allow you to extrapolate from a 20% mm -hmm. stock crash to an even bigger stock crash and so yeah. forth. So I think there, there are mathematical models that are better than the ones that are being used. But I agree VAR is really bad and Gauss is really is all, gives the wrong answers. Uh, absolutely. Anything to be gamed. So. So, I, well, I, I agree that there are better distributions, but people have been pointing out improvements for many years. And the real question is why those haven't made their way into practice or regulation. And that goes to the incentive problems. So, you know, we can, we're like building castles. I wasted years trying to do some of this. And then I realized it was a complete fool's errand. I think we have to go to the incentives. Thank you. Uh, Northrop Beekner, St. John's University. Um, I find it very refreshing to hear uh, the advocacy of free banking. I haven't heard that for quite a while. What has happened to the free banking movement? Um, well, we're doing our best. It's been a bit quiet, but maybe I'll let George answer that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're, we're still there. We're battling away. We're not going to give up, but it hasn't gone very well since the onset of the crisis, because all the things we wanted have gone into reverse. Yeah, so uh, oh, around the late 1980s, there were three of us who were advocating free banking. And I'm pleased to say that today, there are three of us who are advocating <laughs> free banking. <laughs> but if anyone wants to join us, we're, we're taking new members anytime. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Sorry, gentleman at the at the back. Yeah, sure. All right, thank you. Uh, yeah, Joe Pimbley, Maxwell Consulting. Uh, Talking to the mic. 
Uh, hey, let me say, this was a great presentation. I very much enjoyed your earlier paper, Math Gone Mad, and I, and I think this is a great message. But I won't say I'm going to defend math models. I'm going to make a statement that says that what the banking world has done with RWA and what the regulators ask them to do and what they actually, and the regulators do themselves, is exactly the wrong way to use models. Yes. Models are great in their intended purpose, and this is exactly how not to use models. Yes, yes, exactly agree. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I've always been a big fan of Kevin's uh, sense of humor. I think I was just recognizing uh, the next time we do this, I'm going to start having to hand out glossaries at the beginning for all the acronyms uh, that our speakers are using. Uh, one of the more exciting aspects of starting a new academic center, uh, which we have at Cato on monetary and financial alternatives, uh, is we get to recruit new staff. Uh, and that's an exciting part of it. I'm delighted that our newest hire, Thea Knight, will be our final speaker before lunch. Uh, I've learned the hard way that it often pays to have a lawyer on your team. Um, Thea perfectly fits that bill, uh, reminding us about the legal implications of much of what's going on in capital markets. It's where her work uh, mainly focuses. Before joining Cato, she co-founded and served as general counsel of CrowdCheck, a company that provides due diligence and disclosure services in the online investing world. She also served as an investigative counsel at the Congressional Oversight Panel, I will note working for then-Chair Elizabeth Warren, so we, we welcome all comers. Uh, Thea has also spent years with the, a few years with the Washington office of the law firm Wilmore Harrell doing securities litigation and enforcement. We are very excited to have her join the Cato team, uh, and we look forward to her considerable scholarship in the area of capital markets regulation. And so with that, let me turn the podium over to Thea. Businesses have been called the backbone of our economy, the nation's job creation engine, and the ultimate expression of American individualism and entrepreneurial spirit. And indeed, small businesses are vital to our country's growth and prosperity. The vast majority of companies and 99.7% of U.S. employer firms are small businesses. They produce roughly half of the country's GDP. So clearly, any plan to speed up our long, slow climb out of the economic doldrums that have followed the Great Recession have to focus on small business development. And this development requires capital. Whether we're talking about a startup that needs seed money or an established company looking to expand, all businesses need capital access. And in the last few years, this has been hard to come by. Traditionally, small businesses have relied on bank loans. And unfortunately, the community banks that typically provide these loans are disappearing. Many have been swallowed by bigger banks, others failed in the crisis, and the surviving banks have tightened standards and conserved capital. And the big banks? They're not interested in small business lending. A few will lend to existing customers, but many have ceased offering the product altogether, finding it to be unprofitable. 
Although there are indications that lending has loosened the last few years, small business lending remains tight. There are other ways to get money, of course. Venture capital funding has long been the holy grail for startups. And VC is still there, but its target is really a very particular kind of business, a highly scalable startup looking toward a big IPO. There are also angel investors, wealthy people who enjoy investing seed money in nascent ventures, kind of like having a rich Aunt Millie to fund your education. But like rich aunts, there aren't enough angels to go around. So there are startups who use the founder's personal credit cards to get the company off the ground, but this money is very expensive, and most cards are capped at a few thousand dollars. Also, the Credit Card Act of 2009, for many borrowers, increased these costs and made cards harder to obtain. And ultimately, credit cards are no substitute for capital. They're better suited to making small purchases and managing cash flow. So what about IPOs? The crisis hit this market very hard as well, with IPOs plunging in the worst years of the crisis. But overall, IPOs have done well lately. 2014 saw the strongest year since 2000. But it's true that companies are taking longer to go public and going public later in their life cycles. Several smaller companies are foregoing IPOs altogether. Part of this is due to the waves of increasing regulation that have focused on public companies in the last few years. If you're not talking an eight-figure raise these days, it's really not worth doing. Not worth doing because of the cost of the IPO itself, and not worth doing because of the ongoing compliance costs. To say nothing of the risk that you're taking, that there will be future regulations that will further increase your cost of being a public company. So this has been our world. Bank loans, credit cards, VC, angels, the debutante ball of the IPO for the newly grown-up company. It's a stodgy world built for an earlier time. If we're going to have a vibrant small business sector in the 21st century and beyond, we need innovation. Innovation in securities law uh, is something maybe we haven't heard of before, but in early 2012, as the country was just emerging from the Great Recession, something extraordinary happened. Congress rolled back regulation to allow better capital access for small businesses, and the results have been promising. The innovation was the Jumpstart Our Businesses Act, uh, Business Startup Act of 2012, or the Jobs Act. Although the crowdfunding provision got most of the attention at the time, there are several other provisions that are at least, if not more, promising. The key provisions of the Act include a modified IPO process for smaller companies, changes to the private placement exemptions, changes to reinvigorate an old, barely used exemption called Regulation A, and the new crowdfunding exemption. The provisions are only loosely related to one another in that they all relax securities regulation in ways intended to benefit small businesses. So while it might make this a better presentation if I could present this as a coherent whole, it's simply not the way it's written. But that might be for the best. One of the problems with the concept of small business is that it's very diverse. It includes the 50-year-old manufacturing plant with 400 employees, the three college roommates building a new app in their garage, and the law firm with 20 lawyers. These businesses are wildly different with very different, different needs for capital. We need options that recognize and cater to this diversity. The fact that the JOBS Act doesn't really hang together suggests an underlying willingness to try new things, even a lot of new things. This is crucial. 
We will need new things if we want a chance at a flourishing small business sector. The existing securities laws were not written with small businesses in mind because traditionally small businesses didn't use the capital markets. They used bank loans. So our regulatory regime was instead built for large public companies. So let's turn to the Jobs Act to look at how it changes this perspective. We have the IPO on-ramp. This provision waives certain requirements, including several imposed by Sarbanes-Oxley in the first few years after a small company goes public. It also allows the company to test the waters by pitching the IPO to institutional investors to gauge interest before filing the offering documents with the SEC. And it allows the company to initiate the offering process confidentially. By all reports, this provision has been successful. IPOs are up, and we have seen no outbreak of fraud or other abuses of the relaxed regulation. We also have a provision that allows companies to advertise non-public offerings. This will require getting into the weeds a little on the regulation, but it's worthwhile because it's a very important shift. In general, if a company wants to sell stock or bonds, it has to register with the SEC and become a public company. This process is incredibly expensive and not appropriate for all businesses. The law includes several exemptions that allow companies to sell securities without having an IPO, however. One of these, and this is a simplification, allows companies to sell securities to accredited investors, generally wealthy people or institutions, without having to register as a public company. But up until now, the law required that the issuer know that the investor was accredited before even beginning to talk about the offering. There could be no general solicitation, so no cold calling investors, no mass mailings, and certainly no TV ads or highway billboards. That meant you had to be the kind of person who had rich friends, or you had to hire an intermediary who did. The Jobs Act and its implementing rules lift the prohibition on general solicitations. You can still only sell to accredited investors in general, but you can talk to anyone you want about your securities offering. You can advertise on all the TV channels, on any internet site. You could even chat up the guy next to you on the subway. I don't know why you do any of these things, but, and most issuers aren't, but, they're taking, but the fact that you can advertise a private placement on national television is revolutionary in the securities world. It matters because it signals a vital shift in how legislators and regulators are thinking about capital access. It also democratizes the process geographically. Because you had to know potential investors were accredited before you could pitch them, companies that got funding from VCs and angels tended to be located very close to the funds or individuals that invested in them, which meant coastal cities, more or less. But now a startup in Wichita can pitch to angels in L.A. without having to secure a middleman. Additionally, the wealthy person in Cedar Rapids can decide to invest if an ad catches her eye. She doesn't need to be tied into an angel network to find out about these offerings. This lowers the barriers all around. We also have an amendment to an old and almost obsolete reg uh, exemption, Regulation A, and this change has been dubbed Reg A+. This new version allows companies to do a limited offering of up to $50 million to the general public. After the securities are sold, they're freely tradable. This amendment has not yet gone live. The final rules were approved in March and will become effective June 19th. Reg A plus has the potential to provide capital access for a number of companies that are currently in financial limbo. 
For example, we're hearing that biotech and pharmaceutical startups are interested in Reg A+, as well as smaller artisanal manufacturing companies. These are sectors that require substantial upfront investment, biotech and pharma to complete testing phases and manufacturing to buy equipment. And this is a need that's currently underserved. These are fields that could provide enormous benefit to our economy and our quality of life if they had the capital needed to innovate and grow. So now let's talk about crowdfunding, because if there's been one big change, this is it. This change also illustrates some of the challenges small businesses face in overcoming preconceptions about what capital markets should look like. I think what most of us know what crowdfunding is. You post a video online about your new product or your movie or community garden, and people from all over the world invest small amounts of money um, in your venture. And Title III of the Jobs Act would let you do this, but instead of just sending out T-shirts to the people who give you money, you could actually sell them stock in your company, or you could do a bond offering, or you could even be crazy and do convertible debt. Of course, you can't actually do this, because while the Jobs Act was passed in early 2012, crowdfunding needs regulations from the SEC to go live, and those are still forthcoming. We received proposed regulations in 2013, and the SEC held a notice and comment period, but they've not yet set the date for the final vote. This might be for the best because it's not clear that the rules or even the underlying legislation are workable. To the SEC's credit, the crowdfunding provision is incredibly ambitious. The other provisions in the Jobs Act just tinker with existing rules and regulations, whereas the crowdfunding provision creates a new exemption out of whole cloth. And unfortunately, this exemption is still built into the same regulatory framework built around the Securities Act of 33 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And as I said, these laws were not built for small businesses. And because the SEC has traditionally focused on large companies, its staff is simply not equipped to understand the needs of small businesses. The staff are overwhelmingly very bright. They come from a very particular background. Most of the lawyers, they're mostly lawyers, at the SEC went to top schools and then worked at top law firms where they worked with top clients. But these clients are Fortune 500 companies. They have inside counsel, outside counsel, tax specialists, accountants waiting in the wings. And many small companies have never even hired a lawyer. So let's take an example from the, uh, the proposed rules. These rules re would require crowdfunding issuers to provide investors with financial statements that are GAAP compliant. GAAP requires accrual-based accounting, which most small businesses don't use. GAAP is also intricate and highly nuanced. Companies who used GAAP ac use accountants to prepare their financials. The Jobs Act caps crowdfunding raises at $1 million. The kind of company seeking a $1 million raise is not a company that can afford to pay accountants to prepare GAAP-compliant financials. Additionally, there's no reason to believe that these financials would provide valuable information to investors. So why did the SEC think GAAP-compliant financials would be a good idea? Well, because the kinds of companies the SEC typically oversees, large established public companies, GAAP financials work. They provide certain insights that can be valuable for investors when the company is a large public company. But when the issuer is a small business or startup, the insights are limited and the cost becomes prohibitive. So one problem we have with the regulation is this lack of small business perspective. Another one is the existing concept of investor protection. 
There is such a desire to protect retail investors from any loss that they get regulated out of the market altogether. True, they're protected from losing money, but they're also protected from making money. You can't make money without taking on risk. That's the way it works. And small businesses are risky. They fail. They fail and they fail and they fail. But sometimes they succeed and sometimes they hit it out of the park. As I said earlier, companies are taking longer to go public or aren't going public at all. The effect of this shift is that retail investors can't invest at that moment before the company reaches its explosive growth. Sure, investing in a more established company may be safer and that there may be less risk of loss, but there's also less risk of a big reward. So who is investing and reaping this reward? The accredited investors. And I have no problem with accredited investors profiting from their good investment decisions. I just don't think that these opportunities should be closed to everyone else. Workable crowdfunding could open these doors. If the risk argument doesn't fully persuade you, consider this. If you remember our angel investors, unlike VC, which is typically looking for a big exit, angels invest for reasons other than profit. They're often themselves successful entrepreneurs who enjoy helping other promising entrepreneurs. This form of investing is a way to give back. There is an emotional investment that is as much a reason for the investment as the chance to make some money. Retail investors would like this opportunity too. People who can't themselves be entrepreneurs may still enjoy being part of a new venture. Not as a way to save for retirement or fund the kids' education, but as a way to build something. And yes, to take on risk in the process. The crowdfunding provision as written in the Jobs Act ignores this. It envisions a very stilted process built around the highly regulated disclosure template used for larger companies. Generally, the template the SEC uses requires issuers to provide certain information to the public in certain very specific ways while prohibiting it from providing other information. Because so much of the securities laws are built on this template, it's hard for the regulators to stray from the path. The new crowdfunding provision is a step in the right direction. It identified a gap in the market left by the shrinking small business loan market, and it pared back regulation to let a new market develop. But ultimately, there wasn't the political will to pare back regulation far enough to really let this market grow. We need a more flexible approach for crowdfunding to work, but there was just too much concern that people might lose money. The truth is, you will never design a regulatory regime for small business capital in which no one loses money. It's just the nature of the beast. So it's possible that crowdfunding will never get off the ground, and that's too bad. But other options, especially an expanded private, market, market, private offering market and the new Reg A+, have the potential to fill in existing gaps for small businesses. The fact that the JOBS Act was passed and by a wide margin is promising. We would benefit from more legislation like this that identifies those parts of the existing laws that serve no one and only weigh down our economy and pairs them back to make more room for innovation. Let's hope we get those. So now, does anybody have any questions? This gentleman right here. Yes, John Burlaw, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Excellent presentation, Thea. Thank you. Um, um, and I was uh, wondering, I, uh, 
about the uh, – do you see any hope, uh, despite the SEC's snail's pace on, on, title, on Title III of the Jobs Act, crowdfunding for ordinary folks, in the fact that uh, – and, and the way that it was written, as you said, in the fact that uh, uh, 13, about 13 states now have passed, and Illinois is on the verge of signing into law, their own equity crowdfunding provisions for in-state residents – where the SEC doesn't reach because it doesn't, it's not interstate, interstate commerce, that states not just Texas and Georgia, but that Michigan and now Illinois, it's at the governor, uh, the governor's desk where, like, I believe Illinois is like in any individual, in, in, Illinois resident could be able to invest 5000 and companies could raise up to a million without Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is this um, practicable for, uh, for growth of companies with, with some of the big markets that uh, individual states have? And also, does it set the stage that if you get even, because I believe Illinois, it was in both houses, it was near unanimous, does it set the stage for another bipartisan Jobs Act 2.0 in which you get an improved crowdfunding provision? Um, I think that, you know, these interstate crowdfunding uh, legislation, that's really interesting. I, the problem is that the reach will be so small. So there's one use for crowdfunding that I think could be somewhat valuable is for the very small business, which is where the Conor Cafe does a debt offering and all of the people who love that cafe come and, you know, buy bonds from them so that that cafe can expand. And I think that that's something that is useful and hopefully that happens and that's something where definitely an interstate option would work. Um, it, its reach will be somewhat limited, though, just because... At some point, I don't totally understand how you can use the, inter- the Internet to do intrastate crowdfunding um, in terms of making sure that the offering never crosses straight, uh, state lines. Um, and that was one thing that the crowdfunding provision did do is that it explicitly preempted state blue sky laws. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's some opportunity for crowdfunding on the very small scale. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe down the line we have enough, com- enough states doing this we have something that is more workable at the federal level. I just don't see it happening in the near future. This gentleman here. Hi, it's Martin Hutchinson, the Bears Lair again. In my day job, when I'm not writing papers with Kevin, I spend my time working with modestly wealthy investors, you know, advising them in one way or another, um, mostly writing about investments for them. they have been completely ripped off by the last seven years by Mr. Bernanke and his successors in that risk-free interest rates have been negative for the last seven years. My view is you can't have capitalism without capital and that capital formation is being seriously damaged. That They also have the problem, and I speak from experience, that around anybody wealthy there is an unspeakable nexus of sleazy brokers selling all kinds of rubbish with really no way to tell which is adequately uh, competent and which isn't. And the Jobs Act has made this very much worse. In other words, that the real people who've benefited from this new provision are the sleazy brokers, possibly a few companies, but it's become another way to rip off wealthy individuals. And I think the um, risks to private investors are much greater than... Um, people who look at the small business side of this realize? I would challenge the idea that uh, there's no way to tell which is a good investment or not. Um, I think, and you know, 
I, as Mark said, Proudcheck is my own company, but this is a company that we started to do that kind of due diligence background investigation of some of these companies. Um, it, it's a very limited kind of due diligence, but I could see other people in the market springing up to provide this kind of service. Um, there's a need for this kind of law light. Um, you know, if you're going to do a big IPO, you hire you know, Skadden for several million dollars to do your due diligence. There's a version that you can do for a, you know, a, I don't know, $10 million private placement. Um, there are more and more of these people coming forward to provide these kinds of services. And it's, I think it's also part of the broader rev revolution in the legal industry, um, where the big law firms aren't profitable anymore. We have a lot of unemployed young lawyers. There are a lot of opportunities for sort of the H&R block of legal services to come forward. I think that there's a need there, and I, I think that we're going to see some companies that will come forward to fill that. Uh, back there. I'd like to take issue a bit with the previous questioner or commenter. Um, wealthy people have the resources to be able to protect themselves, and if they don't, then they deserve whatever happens to them. <laughs> I'm, I, what, what fascinates me for crowdfunding is somebody who's been very active in early stage businesses in terms of raising money for them, uh, running a, a venture networking group, is that Congress passes a law and the bureaucrats take forever to make sure it never happens. If you are a qualified investor and happen to be a dentist who knows nothing about anything technical, you qualify to make an investment in New Tech Corp. But if you're an MBA working in the tech sector, you don't qualify. You want to put $2,500, $5,000, or $10,000 of your money into a deal that you know because you're involved with the people, and they're in danger of breaking the law if they take your money. Mm -hmm. um, Kickstarter proved your point that there are thousands, or not tens of thousands, of people who want to participate in a deal. Kickstarter, you don't make money on. All you're doing is helping a company get started. Are all of them great? Of course not. But some of them are going to make our economy that much better. And how do we stop the bureaucrats from making life miserable for anybody who wants to be active in the early stage business world? Well, we do. There is a movement underway to redefine accredited investor because people have found that it's. Uh, an ineffective proxy, as you pointed out, to say just because somebody has money, they're more sophisticated. Um, at, at some level, they do have the means to hire people to help them understand the financial products. But um, as you point out, there are people who understand the industry much better than somebody who's wealthier. Um, and I, that's something where there are some people who are talking about it. I, I think that it would be great if we redefined accredited investor, maybe got rid of that designation altogether, um, or at the very least created a, a more workable definition that actually recognized uh, the people who have the ability to protect themselves. Um, I think we this gentleman here. Hi, good morning. Great talk, and thank you for your advocacy on behalf of small businesses. I'm Peter Justin. I run a company called Five Plus that does two things. We do post-transaction monitoring of the small businesses when they receive capital from a bank or a private investor, and we also are very focused on building entrepreneurship ecosystems for emerging growth economies in Africa and hard-hit U.S. cities like Gary, Indiana. 
So I'm kind of curious, as we pivot as a company into offering financial services to these emerging growth businesses globally, and I very much agree with your comments, and I would push them further that there is no small business lending in the U.S. Banks like B of A have 55 programs for small business lending, and they all start with the same thing. Where do you live and how much is your first mortgage? So they do home equity lines of credit, not really yeah. small business loans. Exactly. So, so there's, a, there's a, an interesting movement, and we're, we're trying to push this further on pushing capital into the true small business. Our focus is not on the guy that wants to be the next Facebook because it usually doesn't happen, but it's more on the mainstream. It's the really small business. It's the five-person law firm or the dentist or the franchise owner. And we see alternative lending options coming up. Uh, I was just looking at a company that raised another $40 million to put out to small businesses on factoring receivables, for example. Where do you see that market heading, and where do you see the opportunities in it? I'm sorry, you're saying where in the could – you, could you just restate your question quickly? Sure. We just raised $100 million to right. put into small business lending. Right. Right? And we're going to start pushing that out globally. So our approach is to take – is to look for the guys looking for $10,000 or less in either receivables financing or uh, a startup that is a non-tech-focused startup, right? The whole world in venture investing, for example, is focused on biotech, biopharma, and cybersecurity. Well, there's kind of a life beyond that for that 50% of the GDP that, that has no interest in going public, right. would never attract a venture capital firm. So we see that there's a, there's a hole in the market there that we're trying to address. Right. And I was curious, I mean, you're very educated opinion. I'm curious as to where you see that market. I mean, I think that I think that some of these new opportunities, as I said, in Reggae Plus, um, I think that has potential to fill some of that gap. One of the problems with it is that it does have a certain, it does carry a certain regulatory burden, um, and we'll see where the threshold is, where companies start to feel like, oh, it's worth it's worth the the time to file these papers with. Uh, the SEC and to do these compl- the continuing compliance obligations. Um, so I'm not sure if, you know, at the sub $100,000 level, I'm not sure that that's going to really work for them. Um, and, you know, that is someplace where where it, I'd like to see crowdfunding fill in. Um, I, I think that that's a, a need that's still not being fully satisfied. Um, I think that we are going to see, we've seen some uptick in private placements with the implementing rules for, the implementing regulations for uh, Title II crowd, uh, Title II of the Jobs Act, which was the general solicitation. Still pretty new. We're not sure how that's going to play out. Um, but that's definitely a sector where there's still some movement and there's still some opportunities for um, some more innovation in that area. I think we have time for one more question. This gentleman right here. Do you have any thoughts on the question of microloans for the poor, uh, which is something they need in many of the poor countries, but assuming that the poor aren't regulated out of opportunity here, uh, getting small loans like a couple of hundred dollars or something for someone who wants to buy a sewing machine to do mending or... uh, things of that sort. Um, obviously, that's something that has had enormous uptake overseas, as you mentioned. Um, I think that domestically, there's probably too much regulation for that to be worthwhile. Uh, you know, I have been following what the CFPB has been doing, and I find it somewhat concerning because 
I worry about them regulating those kinds of, you know, payday lending. I'm not saying that you're going to take out a payday loan in order to start a new business. Um, but I think that there needs to be an understanding more broadly of how the how low-income Americans use credit and how they use money. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the people making the rules on these things are people who have never been poor um, and who don't understand the day-to-day way that people use money um, in lower-income communities. So I'm not sure what the solution there is. I just hope that, you know, as the CFPB continues making these regulations, um, I think that oftentimes there's this middle and upper upper middle class bias against uh, credit products aimed at lower income Americans um, that I think is really problematic. So, well, thank you very much. I think we turn it over to Mark and then we'll get to go eat. Thank you. I really want to thank all of uh, this morning's speakers, and, and I know I think all of them, with the exception of, of Kevin, are on Twitter. Uh, I know that Josh, I think Josh actually might have been live tweeting his own speech during the time if I was watching. He's quite, quite active, so I highly recommend if you're on following him. Uh, we're going to take a, about 20 minutes to go out in the atrium and have a glass of wine, relax a little bit. Uh, lunch will be served across the hallway, uh, and then once we have an t- opportunity to sit down and eat, our luncheon speaker will begin.